The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host today, kind of a spiritual journeyman and media producer. I have a website of online courses called youthrivehere.com, and I'm at the Center for Spiritual Living in Greater Baltimore cslgreaterbaltimore.org. Joining me today is my fantastic co-host, Spiritual Rebel, Sarah Bowen. Sarah is the author of Spiritual Rebel, a positively addictive guide to finding deeper perspective and higher purpose. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, Jim, you caught me right in the middle of a bunch of bibliotherapy. Oh my goodness. Is that, is that, uh, is that uh, catchy? What, what is that? I don't think I don't think it's contagious. Uh, I just learned about this word for what I've been doing for decades, and I'm just really excited to be able to throw it around. Bibliotherapy is when we read specific text for the purpose of healing. Did you know that was a thing? I did not. I did not know that. Well, I dug into it a little bit this week because I know we're talking more books. And I found out that ancient Greek libraries were thought of as sacred places with creative powers. So even just sitting in an ancient Greek library, you could heal. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. That is very cool. I have to, I have to confess that I, I think I've been in deep uh, bibliotherapy for quite some time. In the early 1900s, it you know it kind of got its name, and in the 40s, then it became recognized as a mental health treatment. So I'm just spreading the word now that all of us who have stacks and stacks and stacks of books are actually involved in something therapeutic. Who knew? Well, you know, I always knew that. No, I didn't. I always knew that. But now you have an excuse. I do have an excuse. I do have an excuse. As you know, as we read a lot on this show, because we we have a lot of authors on this show. And I just think it's a pleasure to be able to dive into them. And I get a lot of great stuff out of this material, as I'm sure a lot of our folks do. I know I get a lot of boxes coming in the mail off of this show. (laughs) More books and more books, which is a good thing. We're getting healthier every week, Jim. Absolutely. We just have to keep, keep rolling with it. And how about you? What are you up to? Well, you know what? I have these cards. Um, Yannick Silver has these really cool uh, cosmic cards that I've been really enjoying. Um, You know, a lot of folks have oracle cards and that sort of thing. And uh, I find them useful sometimes. I know you use the I Ching. Is it the I Ching? No, you use, yeah, you use the 
Yeah, yeah, I use the I Ching, and oh, and lots of decks of cards too. Yeah. Um, I just I found these, and I, I they're really resonating with me. I think they're they're very cool. Um, it's it's all about discerning consciousness for yourself, cosmic consciousness for yourself in any form. Whenever you use any of these things, I don't necessarily know that they're predictive of of things, but I do find that they're good for centering yourself on on things that you can choose to focus on and learn from. Agreed. I, I do that every morning. It's important, like before meditation, to figure out what I want my mind to focus on. The the I Ching helps with that. I'm gonna get that that deck of cards you're talking about, and uh, maybe we can compare notes. You're not gonna get it. I just sent it to you. <laughs> Excellent free cards. <laughs> you get a card. You get a card deck. You get a card deck. I do think you know card decks are 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 really popular now, and I do think that we're looking for some way to to discern. I think our brains are going so fast. And that ability just to pull a card or to do, you know, or even going back to books, you know, the practice of Lexio Divina, you just pick a passage, right? And you read it, you meditate on it, you pray with it, you listen to it. We, we really need things to focus, I think, our minds. And so in whatever way we can do that, whatever practice, written word, or, you know, some people do it with art, some people do it with music, but that idea of being able to focus in on, on one, one thing to think about. I think that's really helpful. I agree. I very much agree. And you also have a new uh, gift that you got that you've been uh, showing me. And that is you have a baby Yoda from the Mandalorian. You I do have a baby Yoda. Yeah, my husband, amazingly, that man loves me. He, You know, he got me a baby Yoda for Christmas and he made me a squirrel picnic table. Oh my so goodness. So I'm going to keep that husband around for a while. <laughs> I think that's yeah. a good idea. The baby Yoda, he's... He's kind of cute. You tap him on the head and he makes different little noises. So every we may hear him go off. He tends to go off when I'm not expecting. So if anyone hears that in the background today, that's just a little extra uh, co-host, Baby Yoda. Well, cool. I hope he doesn't require a paycheck. No, he works for free. Oh, that's awesome. Well, even better then. Even better then. All right. Are you ready for some dueling inspirations? I am. I am ready to duel. I have the force with me right here. Okay. Here's what I've got. When I read something that rings true and goes straight to my heart or hear it or see it, that aha feeling comes. I know that I am in the presence of something greater than I am. Ooh, that is so true. So true. And it, and that is, that Alice? is true bibliotherapy. Yes. That's Alice O'Howell from a book called the Web and the Sea, Jung, Sophia, and the Geometry of the Soul. Ooh, Maybe what just a like neat the name. title, The Geometry yeah. of the Soul. Yeah. I like that a lot. Well, here's mine. <clears throat> I have learned as a rule of thumb never to ask whether you can do something. Say instead that you are doing it, then fasten your seatbelt. The most remarkable things follow. Oh, Jim, I love that. Who is this? That's Julia Cameron. Excellent. Is that from her latest? No, actually, it's from, um, well, actually, I'm not exactly sure which book that's from, um, but I, I found it, and, you know, she she's a, an author that really resonates with me with her, her information on creativity and her, her paths to that, and I, I really stuck to it, so I really, I really like that one. You know, do you remember having a car where 
the seat belt would come across automatically. Did you ever have a car like that? I did not. I don't think. When I was 16, my first car, all of a sudden the license, the laws had just come into effect about having to wear a seatbelt because before then it used to be optional. If right. I remember way back in the day to wear a seatbelt. And I had this car where it would put itself on you when you got in the car. And I never quite adjusted to that. So I like this idea of fastening my own seatbelt. <laughs> all right. Are you ready to dive into the show? Yes. Fasten your seatbelts. Let's do it. Let's do it. Here's Martha Creek with a Unity Moment. Hi, friends. This is Martha Creek, marthacreek.com to contact me. And this today's lesson is inspired by the teachings of Eckhart Tolle, creating a new earth, living a life with purpose. And the topic is attachment. <laughs> how, many, how many times have you heard, let go of your attachments, let go of your attachments? <laughs> How do you let go of attachments? How in the world do we think we're going to be able to let go of attachments? So if you don't ever take anything away from any of my podcast or lessons, please take this away. Don't even try. Stop trying to let go of attachments. Yes, do not even try this. Don't try this at home, folks. Don't try letting go of attachments. It's impossible. The great news, however, is attachment to things drops away by itself when you no longer seek to define yourself in them. Attachment to things drops away. Attachments to things leave us. Attachments to things fade away or stop to exist when you and I no longer seek to define ourselves by them, to find ourselves in things, to define ourselves in things, so that I will no longer be attached to things in the material world, in the financial world, in relationship world, in familial world, when I stop defining myself by them. So what I have and who I know and where I go and what I wear and what I own and what I've got displayed and what I've got in the bank does not define who I am. So when I stop seeking to prove who I am or to prove uh, my uh, power, value, and worth by things then attachment drops away. Maybe this will be the best gospel news of your day today. To quit trying to let go of attachments and instead give your time and energy and care, practice to stopping defining myself by things. So then attachment to things stops when I stop seeking to define myself by them. So what would that look like in your life right here and right now if you understood there is nothing in the world, no belongings, no possessions, no ideas, no anything 
that defines who you are, that defines your power, your value, your safety, your worth, or anything. If you simply did not believe that any longer, what would that be like? Funniest Thing Guy, Ed Biagioti, joins us with a new segment. Hello, everybody. My name is Edward Biagioti, and I am the co-host of Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed, right here on Unity Online Radio. And it is a pleasure to be with you today on Big Universe to talk about putting your work into the world. And I think all of us, when we hear stories about great people like Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, anyone we admire who the Fillmores goes out into the world and brings their sort of inner work or really their inner purpose into the world. It's so inspiring and I think why it resonates so strongly with all of us is because we all want to feel that great purpose that's within our heart to be truly who we are and to inspire other people to do the same. And the beauty about living this way is that it's not so much what you do, but how you do it. Practicing these principles is really just that. It's practicing and understanding that there are principles that govern the universe. And that when we live with, cooperate with, understand, deepen our awareness of these principles, we realize that we live in a loving universe. Now our minds have been conditioned and we get into these false beliefs that we live in a scarce world where there's not enough and we have to fight or claw, or put others down, or try to be someone we're not, or, you know, sort of disavow who we really are, and, you know, be afraid, and protect ourselves, and be guarded. But the truth that we find when we practice these principles, and meditation really is a huge part of it, as well as the inspired reading, and all of these things, because meditation, it's one, I could say whatever, and how would you know if it's true? Anyone could say anything. But for one, we have this inner indicator inside us. We feel the truth, and it feels so good. It's uplifting. It's liberating. It reminds us that life is this valuable, amazing blessing and that our job really is to be an ambassador of God's love and share that joy through being ourselves, through everyone we meet. The meditation allows us, and it's simple. Don't overcomplicate it. It's just sitting and breathing and relaxing. Remembering, looking around, feeling, letting that natural sense of wholeness bubble up from within. Because that, the proof, that's really where the proof is in the pudding. Because our own sense of who we are and what's real and true will, will affirm that these principles are real. But the thing that I really like about bringing your work into the world is that it doesn't matter what your job is or you don't have to, you know, get rid of your old life and set off on this new, you know, uh, this just big dramatic 180. All the, It really starts with where you are, blessing where you are, appreciating what you have, appreciating who you are, magnifying the good, shining that light on others, affirming our own worth and wealth. And God has ways that we know not of. So 
we can never rationally, with our rational mind, figure it out. It's this inner game of following our inspiration, following our bliss, staying connected to who we truly are, and watching the most amazing, unexpected ways that that good blesses others and blesses ourselves in the process, and everything we've ever dreamed of and desired starts to unfold and happen in ways we could have never really controlled. So enjoy bringing your work into the world simply by being your most inspired and enthusiastic self and shining that love on others. And now it's time for our interview. Paul Cohen is the founder and owner of Monkfish Book Publishing Company, which publishes books on spirituality and religion. He's published more than 400 books since 2002, including works by Stephen Levine, Matthew Fox, Rami Shapiro, Deepak Chopra, Rupert Sheldrake. We had Rupert on the show, very happy to say. Uh, he was previously a senior executive of sales and acquisitions, specializing, specializing in body, mind, spirit publishing, where he oversaw the release of over 4,000 new titles, many best-selling authors. He's also the president and owner of Vepigraph, publishing service, which offers innovative approaches for new authors interested in self-financed hybrid publishing options. And, you know, I'm glad I got through all that because, you know, my tongue seems to be tied today. You can look for more at monkfishpublishing.com and find them on Instagram at monkfishbookpublishing. Paul, welcome to Big Universe. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. It's great to have you. Um, you might be familiar, uh, if you're not familiar, my co-host is Sarah Bowen. Um, do you know her from anywhere? <laughs> yes, Sarah <laughs> and I have a long history. We do, we do. It's great to have you on the show today, Paul. Thank you, Sarah. So I really want to get your insights um, as a publisher and as someone who I assume is, is a fan of this the genre. Um, how did you get your start in publishing and what made you decide to go into this genre, the, the uh, spirituality, religion category? Well, I had been working in the, the family business, um, which was a piano, piano stores that my, that my family owned and had run for a couple of generations. But at a certain point, I just I needed a break and I and I moved uh, to Boston and the first job I got was working for a magazine and I immediately caught the publishing bug from that and then a few years after that I got a job working for a book distributor that specialized in spiritual books from all different all different categories of religion and and it was that was um, that was really when I decided I wanted to be a book publisher and wanted to focus on this on this particular genre. What draws you to it, this genre? Well, it's a you know it's a personal interest of mine. I've always I've always been a voracious reader of spiritual literature since about the age of 17, 18 years old. And when I discovered that I might be able to connect that passion uh, with a career, uh, that was. And that was it for me. I, I knew that I really felt like that's what I wanted to be doing. He was like a fish in water, Jim. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, so Paul, I have a question for you. Sure. There have been a lot of studies and reports about voracious reading uh, right now during the pandemic. Have you noticed any type of correlation at Monkfish? Um, yes. I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> 
course, when the pandemic first hit, everybody in book publishing took an immediate dive. That was back in March. But I think what astounded everyone was how things just bounced back the very next month. And, and uh, I think, as, as you both probably know, book publishing in, as an industry was actually up this year. And Monkfish was up this year as well. What was interesting about it in particular was that the uh, sales for most publishers were driven by backlist sales. In other words, sales, books that had already been previously published. And we saw a huge spurting growth in, uh, in our backlist sales in this last year. And we also saw uh, quite a bit of growth at Epigraph as well. I, I suppose um, that was because a lot of authors were suddenly out of their daytime job and they, they thought, okay, now is the time for me to might have publish a book. I think that a lot, a lot of that has happened. I have so many friends. I actually, right before this, we started talking today. I had a friend who texted me and said, I started writing my novel finally. Yeah. So I think that idea of being home, we're also really, really bored at home. Uh, but I think <laughs> being able to have that space to write, uh, we have it now in a way that we never had before, because like Jim said, you know, we were at our day jobs. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, reading is still, it's still pretty cheap. I mean, you know, when you think that a book might take, you know, four to six hours to, to write and, and, you, and you paid $16 for it or $12 or whatever, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good value still. Did you just say four to six hours to write, Paul? Did I say that? <laughs> no, definitely. Because if you did, I need to learn how to do that. <laughs> no, no, four to six hours to read, excuse me. There we go. That's that's what I thought. Yeah. So how it, did it, how did you meet uh, how did you meet Sarah? How did she did she pitch a book book to you or or was it a different way? It was a different way. I was trying to I was trying to kick a uh, nicotine addiction, and there was a local nicotine anonymous group, and oh. and uh, and Sarah was in there, and that's that's how we connected. Which is a you know it's a deep way actually to connect to somebody. Sure, and, sure. And I don't think he's actually heard the other side of that meeting, so I'm going to completely divulge it right here, which is that I had a sponsee who knew I was working on a book, and when Paul came in and he mentioned what he did for a living, she kicked me under the table, leaving a bruise, <laughs> and then afterwards said, "You got to go talk to that guy." And it's kind of interesting because in 12-step in groups, we do have a, uh, you know, there's kind of a code. You don't mix, you don't mix certain things, but, uh, but Paul and I mix those. And I think it's, it was beautiful for me to have, I, I like to say God kind of dropped him right in front of me. So as far as the material that you publish, um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what kind of, what kind of things are coming up for Monkfish and, 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 you know, what kind of stuff do you really get into when you publish? Well, a monkfish's niche is really around uh, the kind of spirituality that is rooted in religion. And, and sometimes, like with Sarah's book, Spiritual Rebel, even though it's about rebelling against maybe the constraints of religion, it, it's, it, it's also deeply uh, rooted in religion. So for example, I would, I would publish a book, a well-written book about atheism because atheism is also uh, rooted in religion. So, um, so I'm, you know, so I'm primarily looking for books that have that kind of root, um, but also of recent I've begun, we've begun publishing books that have to do with the environment. 
because uh, the environment is in such a precarious place right now that um, I just, I couldn't find it within myself to say that a book that's about saving the planet isn't spiritual because if that isn't spiritual, I don't know what is. That kind of tees up a, something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is what is the relationship between reading about spirituality and practicing spirituality? That's a great question. And, and you know, for me, they're basically identical. I mean, I, for me, reading really is my primary, my primary spiritual practice. And uh, my practice is, right now, my practice is primarily Jewish. And of course, in Judaism, there's a huge emphasis on study. You know, in Orthodox parts of the world, that's what, you know, that's what people do with all of their spare time. They, they study. But my spiritual path actually has been, has cut across many different traditions over a period of time. And whether I'm into a, a, doing a Buddhist thing or a Sufi thing or a Christian thing, studying is, and reading books has always been the foundation of the way I approach uh, spirituality. What's a favorite book of yours? Not that Do Monk Fist publishes. Book? Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're just getting on that at the same time. Whoops. <laughs> go, restart, Jim. <laughs> What's a well, favorite? Yeah, go ahead. You know, my favorite book probably changes once a month, but uh, probably the most influential book for me in my life was uh, Be Here Now. Hmm. Because uh, Be Here Now is a book I read when I was, you know, in college. And it was a book that made it okay to uh, practice across traditions. And it was the first book I ever read that gave me the understanding that we'd live in this very special time uh, where the esoteric part of religions, which had been hidden for hundreds or even thousands of years, was suddenly opened up to the general public. So now we have access um, you know, to the esoteric parts of every religion. And, uh, and Be Here Now was the first book that I read that, that made that clear. And on top of that, it included drugs. So, you know, drugs and religion is kind of, <laughs> kind of my sweet spot. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say to that. <laughs> Although, you know, psychedelics, you know, have played a role for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, there's additional study, you know, in recent times that, that show, you know, there is a connection for some folks. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it was my first uh, experience of what I later would call, you know, higher consciousness. It was the first time I actually really understood that I had a mind. Bef before that initial experience, I thought all the time, but I wasn't aware of my mind mm. as an entity. Mm. And I think that's one thing that happened for a lot of people. They had that psychedelic experience and they realized, wow, the mind is a powerful thing in and of itself so we're like i think a lot of us were just like fish in water we didn't know there was such a thing as water and then we didn't know there was such a thing as mine and then suddenly there was this boom big experience where everything seemed different hmm. well we'll be right back on big universe with unity online radio Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. We're talking with Paul Cohen of Monkfish Publishing. So, Paul, I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, a lot of people, I would assume that a lot of people in our audience, in fact, are interested in, you know, publishing a book. It's something that is very important to a lot of folks in the self-help, new thought, you know, spirituality genre, a, a lot of people like to do that. So what advice would you give them? What do you look for in an author, for instance? Well, you know, what I'm looking for is some sense of an inspired talent. That That's kind of the bedrock of, of what I'm looking for. But what does that mean? In other words, these words just pull me in and they lift me up. That's really what it means, that I can't put the book down. Um, that uh, I'm looking all the time for that kind of immersive experience, both in the books that I publish and in, in the books that I read. But the other thing that's very important uh, as a publisher is that they have a sense of that they're well read themselves. Uh, and they understand the milieu in which they're, uh, they're writing. So if they're writing about whatever if they're writing about feminist theology for example that they're they're on top of what are the important books in the field and and where is the field moving to now and where does that book fit into the milieu so uh, it's it's the combination of those two things that really um that make me want to publish a book do they have to have a platform already do you look for someone that has that's out there that's been you know, has a blog or has some sort of recognition in the public or does that matter? Um, it matters, um, but it, we, I would never make a decision just based on that because some of the best writers are hermits. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the, the quality of the material is, is the first thing. It would affect, for example, if they did have, if they had no, no platform, if it was the first book, for example, with zero platform, Oh, uh, but we just we love the book then you know it would it, that would show up in in the form of say a a reduced roy a reduced royalty advance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or some kind of reduced royalty to begin with but now let me ask you this um just as an aside um is my million dollar check in the mail yet or not oh yeah it is jim oh excellent okay yeah i'm surprised you haven't gotten it yet yeah i'll have to check my paypal account <laughs> maybe maybe it was paypal uh, is there a kind of particular book that you're looking for right now, for instance? Is there is there a particular genre or something that you're looking for specifically? Or are you just open to something that takes people in a different direction? I'm open to any book that uh, furthers the conversation in whatever, whatever subject matter uh, they're writing in. And it could be any religion. Um, it could be any form of spirituality that acknowledges that religious root. Um, so, um, so there's no we're not we're not the kind of publisher that goes looking for things. Except, um, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll approach an author with with a commission to write a book. But other than that, <clears throat> uh, no, there isn't really. You know, the, the the great thing about publishing in this particular genre is that it's not, it's not very topical. 
which on the one hand uh, may mean that a book doesn't sell a gazillion copies, but most of the books that we, most of the books we publish continue to sell for years and years. And some books actually will sell more in the 10th year than they did in their in the in the second year, for example. So that's we're looking for books that are that are going to last. We're looking for books that are durable. We're looking for books that um, you can go back to and profitably read a second or third or fourth time. Because you know, I mean, even from a commercial point of view, those are the kind of books that that are going to generate the the kind of word of mouth that is the most cost effective form of marketing that there is. So. Monkfish publishes a really diverse line of books. Uh, I, I know when I first started looking at, at what you had on the website, and I was like, wow, these are, you know, they're all over the place. They're within this genre, but it's a very diverse group of books. What forthcoming titles are you particularly excited about? Besides Sarah's books, I mean. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. You're my number one fan. I am. <laughs> I appreciate that. But what, you know, what really has you excited that's coming out right now? What, what do you think is timely and, and an important read that's coming off of your lineup? Well, there's, there's a couple that I would mention. Um, there's a book coming out this month called Bride of the Buddha, which is a novel. And it's, a, it's an enormously important book from my perspective, because it's, a, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a great read. It's a novel. That's the first thing. It's a book that just keeps pulling you in and pulling you in. But the other thing is that it's it's a feminist perspective on Buddhism. Hmm, that's interesting. That's very interesting, yeah. It's an historical novel which has been deeply researched. So this is this is a, an author that's going in there and she's basically, you know, rewriting a Buddhist history from a feminist perspective. So I, to me, that's a, that's a very important book. And then, um, Sarah, I think you know about this other book that's coming out in um, March called Bright Green Lies. Yes, I read this. Jim, I've got to get you a copy of that one. Excellent. So the subtitle is How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way mm. and What We Can Do About It. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, this is the kind of book that's a, it's a lot of fun to publish because it, it's going against the stream. And, you know, basically, the argument of the book is that green technology uh, is only going to deepen the problems for the planet Hmm. and that green technology most of it came about as basically a way to capitalize Hmm. the woes of the planet and that the real solution lies in conservation but the it's a 500 page book and the authors go through every single type of green technology they explain how it is that the technologies are created and what the costs are to the planet of each technology. So I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a very important book. For writers that are just starting out, um, what kind of suggestions on the actual writing process would you have for them? If you have some. I come into, I come into two book projects mostly after the writing is done. And so I'm probably not the best person. I'm not a writing coach. Sure. For example. So, but I mean, I'm basically my, my main advice to new readers in particular is to read, 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 and to, and to study what you read, to, to take the time to look at how other authors have accomplished the things that they set out to accomplish 
And um, I think that's going to make a huge difference. We do, I see a lot of books, you know, we get a lot of submissions, uh, only a small percentage of which ever make it. There's usually two reasons why they don't from our perspective. One is just that they're obviously poorly written. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a there's a typo on the first page, for example. That makes it hard for any publisher or editor to get a whole lot further than that when they're swamped with submissions. But also, sometimes they seem to be oblivious about about the fact that somebody else has already written about this same exact subject, and you don't seem to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. So, and the other piece of advice I have is to to gather readers around you. This is something that uh, most experienced authors, most successful authors do. They always have at least one or two people that they show a first draft to before they try to submit it. And the same thing goes with writers groups. You know, it's, of course, it's really important if you're in a writers group to, to being a good one because there are bad writers groups there are writers groups that are just there's nobody with any experience in there and Mm -hmm. and uh you know this this whole writing editing thing it's a um it's a very emotional Mm -hmm. i have to say Mm -hmm. it took me it took me a while to understand how emotional the process really is every stage of it's emotional by the way too cover design can be extremely emotional and an editing can be especially emotional. So if you go into a writer's group and somebody and, and writers there have an agenda, an un, unexamined agenda, like the way I'm going to feel better about myself is putting down another writer, you know, that's a writing group that you need to exit quickly. But if you're in a writing group and there's seasoned writers in there, I can't imagine a more valuable experience than that to the writing process. When someone submits a book, do they do it through an agent? Do they, is there a direct way to submit it? I don't, you know, I don't want to inundate you with like a thousand uh, submissions right now, but is there, is, what's the process for that? Well, there's a uh, submissions guidelines uh, that we publish on Monkfish. And uh, basically we're looking for, we're looking for a query via email first which is a book description and a short author bio and some explanation as to why they're submitting the book to Monkfish. And if the the book looks like it's a fit for us, then at that point, we'll ask to see the manuscript and we'll ask to see a marketing plan. If they have a marketing plan, Uh, we'll ask to see comp titles. Comp titles is an interesting uh, part of it because a lot of authors don't know that every publisher is gonna ask for comp titles. What the is reason, a comp title? I don't even know what that is. It's a comp, they're comparable titles. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and the reason this comes out in the publishing process is because the publisher or the distributor who's ever selling the books, that the first thing they're going to ask the rep is, what is this book like? Help me get my head around this book. And so comp titles are, are the way are, are the way that uh, that we can do that. And so if authors research their own comp titles on Amazon nowadays, it's easy to do it on Amazon. That makes the publisher's job easier, and it lets us know that they're that they're that they're doing the research. So we do we do also uh, we'll accept submissions from agents. It's uh, one of the advantages of uh, of agents in general is that they're um, more likely to spend the time to prepare an author to make a submission. 
because I think a lot, I think with new writers, you know, there's a huge difference between a, a new writer and an experienced writer. It's just, it's an enormous difference. An experienced writer has already been through the process of publishing and they understand the rigors of it. It's not unusual for new authors to say, hey, I just finished, um, I just finished my manuscript by which they mean a first draft and I'm gonna start sending it around to publishers, which is not really a great idea. They should, they should at least be one or two readers that read it uh, to get some of that feedback. You know, it's interesting because uh, writing and publishing, um, it's one of the art forms that requires the participation of other people. You know, if you're doing, if a painting doesn't require that, or writing a song doesn't require that, or sculpting doesn't require that, but, but publishing, like making movies is, is very much uh, a process that involves lots of people. I think that's a really good point to make for anyone who's interested in writing, because it, especially that word process, I, I think there's something that can happen when writers, when we first start writing, where there's a very romantic vision of this kind of perfect thing that flows out of us, and then all of a sudden it ends up on a bookshelf. And, and what I have learned is there are so many steps involved and like Paul saying so many people uh, that to be really um, realistic, I think, and, and learn about the publishing process and learn about the steps that are, that are going to happen and the, and the length of time that it takes too. It, it's not something that happens very quickly. Um, and I think once you finish writing something, you know, you expect it to see in the bookstore tomorrow. But that's just not what happens, is it, Paul? <laughs> you know, so I, I think getting educated would be something I would add from the writer's side of getting educated about all of this really helps you be less emotional through the different steps that happen. Hmm. How long does it typically take a, uh, a book to go from the manuscript to the, if, if there's a typical, to the actual publishing on the shelf? Um. If with on the monkfish side of our business, it um, it usually takes a year or two. And uh, one of the reasons why it takes that long is because of the major accounts that, that our distributor is selling to, they want to know about a book five months in advance of when it's coming out because they want to pre-order the book so that it fits into a budget. So uh, so that's just you know five or six months just at it. Uh, right on to the time. And then there's this uh, pre-publication period where um, we produce a galley of a book. It's a pre-publication version of a book that goes out not only to major accounts, but to trade publications, people like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews. And those guys, want they really want to see galleys five or six months in advance. And that's also how much advance notice we're giving the reps we're sending we're sending galleys to all the reps. Um, and then there's there's uh, just two basic catalog seasons for books. There's a fall and winter and a spring summer. And that's very deadline driven process. So if you miss the deadline, the next deadline for the next available season, that, that can also push back publication. Then the editing process, uh, you know, it could take a long time sometimes some books some books get spit out quickly. Some books take, can take months to go through an editing process. And some books, uh, uh, some books we love the idea, but 
and they you know we request a rewrite so that again that that can take a lot of time on the epigraph side um where there's no screening it's a self-publishing company basically okay and, and we're using on-demand publishing it can be it can be really fast if, it, if an author sends us a book and it's been edited to their satisfaction we can have that book on amazon in you know six weeks two months so it's lightning fast compared to traditional publishing and they can they i assume you offer services that they can use like editors and that sort of thing or what kind of what kind of process is that well, our, our core service is design and distribution. So, uh, and so if they send us a, a, a book in a, in a Word document, we'll take that, we'll design the interior of the book, the cover of the book, and then, you know, we'll help with things like cover copy and so forth. And we'll put the book immediately into distribution. But a lot of the books also require editing and editing is generally the most uh, uh, the most labor intensive and the longest process that that book will go through. Is it the same genres or it's any genre that goes through? It, it's any genre, any genre. Okay. okay. So Jim, you can do your book that way tomorrow. I know Ex you're sitting on one. Exactly. My Star Trek um, transformative experience slash play is going to be coming out soon. So excellent listeners. Stay tuned for that. Are you going to get a blurb from Sarah? Cause she, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely blurb that book, Jim. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask a question for Paul about a, a recent trend I've been seeing with people about where they purchase their books. And I know that there's been a lot of pushback uh, recently on, on Amazon uh, and uh, a kind of a move to using bookshop or different ways that indie bookstores are trying to stay afloat right now, especially when we have uh, pandemic regulations in place and things like that. Can, can you comment all about, do you have a perspective on that as a publisher? Is it important where people purchase their books? Um, yeah, it's, I think it's important uh, that the publishing industry is kept healthy by having viable competitors, and uh, and so Bookshop in particular is a, a very important new development that happened primarily during the pandemic. Bookshop is an Amazon-like company uh, where when you order the book through the website, they will funnel the sale through whatever independent bookstore is closest to to the customer. Oh, I was unaware of this. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then the customer has the option. They can either pick the book up at the store or they can just have the book mailed uh, from, from the printer and just have the store receive a credit. And, um, and Bookshop has grown enormously uh, during this last year. I don't know what the growth has been, but it's something like a thousand percent growth or something. I mean, it's just exploded onto the scene. And it became particularly important because you guys probably remember that in the early days of the pandemic, Amazon had to deprioritize books so they, they could get things out like, you know, sanitizers and face masks. And, and that just left an opening for Bookshop, which Bookshop just dove in and they just took advantage of. So, but of course, Amazon also grew uh, in, in market share 
basically at the expense of independent bookstores during the pandemic. So that's another reason why a, a bookshop is very important. Um, there's a third trend that we saw, which is that um, independent bookstores have been surviving by offering virtual uh, book events. So we had one here locally in uh, Rhinebeck recently. It was a book that we published called A Kabbalah of Food. And we have a fabulous independent bookstore in Rhinebeck called Oblong. And they said, hey, they actually approached us and they said, hey, we think this would make for a great virtual event. This is a local rabbi and you're a local publisher. And, uh, and it was a tremendous success. They ordered 75 copies of the book. When they ordered that, I thought, okay, these are getting returned. But, you know, <laughs> but they reordered books a couple of weeks after the event. It was just a fabulous, it was a fabulous thing. So bookstores all across the country are doing this. Some of them have found that it doesn't work, but some of them have found that it, that, uh, that it, it does. And of course, this is just, it's so important that independent um, publish, independent uh, uh, bookstores survive because when there's too much power in any single company, whether it was Barnes and Noble or Borders in the past or Amazon now, that puts a real kibosh on who gets published. And if you're only, if the only players out there that can sell books are people who are solely driven by the bottom line, there's going to be a ton of great literature that just never sees the light of day. What's it like to work with folks like uh, Deepak Chopra, or Rupert Sheldrake, and and that sort of level? Is there a difference? I mean, there's certainly probably a professionalism. They know what a book looks like, it feels like, and sounds like. Is there a difference working with a, a someone of that stature? Um, there is a, a difference for us in working with uh, seasoned authors in that they they already know the ropes and uh, and they've and there are certain parts of the publishing process that they don't they're not sweating over. Editing tends to go a little more smoothly. Uh, most of them don't care about cover design, which is something that uh, less experienced authors usually have more of a vested interest in. Um, and most of them don't have a design or marketing background. Mm -hmm. And so that, that can become uh, problematic. Sarah is one of the few authors that, that we publish that that has both design and, 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 and marketing expertise, but that's, that's the exception uh, to the rule. So generally speaking, it's easier for us to publish a more experienced uh, publisher um, than a less experienced publisher. But beyond that, you know, there's not a huge difference. I mean, some of them are really gracious, wonderful people, and some of them are not. <laughs> <laughs> So your spiritual practices, you said earlier, are um, are Judaism right now, and you, you've had some flexibility with different philosophies, and you also talk about uh, books as being a primary spiritual practice. Is there anything else uh, you do in your life? And by the way, uh, Sarah earlier told me that I needed to seek out bibliotherapy, or I already was seeking out bibliotherapy. I was unfamiliar with this word, but apparently I'm doing a great deal. I know you are a seasoned bibliotherapy practitioner. I just don't know now, if there's Jim. a shot for that or not. <laughs> uh, I think I kind of fall into that camp myself. I, um, well, I do, you know, depending upon what I'm, what I'm studying, it generally determines what I'm practicing. So right now I'm, 
um, uh, I'm praying a lot more because Judaism is very much a, a religion of prayer. And, um, and I'm doing uh, my main focus in Judaism right now is Kabbalah. So I'm doing, I'm doing some practices which are drawn from the Kabbalah. They, they have to do with certain chants. And, uh, and you know, I mean, most religions are just tremendously diverse, especially the major religions, because they've been around so long. So there's this, there's this Jewish practice. I'm sure it's okay if I mention it here, but it's, had a, it's really been a profound effect. You know, in Judaism, you're not supposed to pronounce the name of God. Mm-hmm. But they, but they give you these four Hebrew lessons, right? There's Yod, Hey, Vov, and Hey. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a meditation and a chant, like a mantra that goes along with that. So for the first one, Yod, uh, the chant is, I am holy. And then for the second one, which is a Hey, it's, um, you are loved. Mm. It's an unbelievably powerful thing to say. Yeah. And then after that, it's... Um, now of course i'm forgetting that <laughs> i am holy you are perfect and the last one is all all is perfect maybe before we get through the end of this uh i'm gonna that last one is gonna come back to me <laughs> maybe i'm not maybe i'm not supposed to share it maybe it's too esoteric or either that or i'm getting old you need more i like knowing <laughs> I like knowing that even a publisher of so many spiritual books also struggles with remembering sometimes the lines. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today. Uh, it's been great to have you on Big Universe. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it's been, it's, it's, uh, it's been, been great talking with this team of you. Thank you so much, Sarah, Sarah, for being a part of this. And thank you, Jim, for having me on. Absolutely. To find out more about Paul's imprint, monkfishpublishing.com. And for more great information about Sarah Bowen, go to www.spiritual-rebel.com. I've got premium video courses and help to create them with folks on my website called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth, and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. 